Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, John Acomfra. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University is presenting John Acomfra's three-channel video installation, Precarity, a work that it commissioned for its collection and that debuted at the Ogden Museum as part of the recent Prospect 4 Triennial in New Orleans. Precarity loosely tells the story of coronet player Buddy King Bolden, the most popular musician in turn-of-the-century New Orleans and a man known for improvisation and volume. In 1907, under circumstances that remain unclear, he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson with schizophrenia. There are no known surviving recordings of Bolden's work, but historian Ted Gioa credits Bolden and his band with being the originator of what we now call jazz. The film is as much an exploration of New Orleans and southern Louisiana, its history, and how its history impacts the present, as it is a consideration of Bolden. Precarity is on view at the Nasher through September 2nd. Acomfra is one of the founders of the Black Audio Film Collective, which was active between 1982 and 1998. The collective used film and media to examine issues of black British identity through film and media. Since then, Acomfra and his producing partners founded Smoking Dogs Films. Acomfra's work has been shown at the Tate Britain, the ICA London, and the Museum of Modern Art New York. On the second segment, we'll hear my March conversation with Acomfra taped when the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art opened the U.S. debut of his Vertigo C. John Acomfra, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. Step into the ancient world of Greece and Rome at the newly reimagined Getty Villa. Experience masterpieces never before on view, a major reinstallation of the collection's Greek, Roman, and Etruscan treasures, and new exhibitions, including Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions, which features work by Jeff Koons, Whitney McVeigh, Raymond Pettibone, and many other celebrated artists. Learn more about the Getty Villa and Getty Center's lineup of events at getty.edu slash 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. John Acomfra, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. The subject of precarity, at least in terms of the human subject, is a uh, musician named Buddy Bolden. How did you come to know of him and why did he interest you? You know, this is the the fascinating point for me uh, because it tells you something about the nature of his disappearance i go to new orleans just over a decade ago to to make a film on louis armstrong and i'm there in part because i was told by all the books that i'd read that louis armstrong was the foundational figure the father of jazz and I get there and I'm encountered. I come into contact with, make all these encounters with this other figure this called Charles Buddy Bolden. And until I got to New Orleans, principally to make a film on Louis Armstrong, I had never heard of this man. And that fascination with the disappeared is pretty much what has animated this because I felt a kind of debt sense of uh, debt to this figure who I had inadvertently robbed of his place in the pantheon of jazz. <laughs> so I thought at some point I needed to put it right. And so when um, Trevor Schoolmaker asked me to, to take part in 
in, in prospect. It was one of the ideas I was keen to explore with him. And, you know, because of his interest in, in, in music and in African-American music from that part of the world, he didn't need too much persuading. Obviously, to a considerable extent, jazz and New Orleans are very closely tied, both in the historical past and in the present. Did you go into precarity, the planning and research for precarity, thinking mostly about Bolden or was making the city and Louisiana's past a big part of your work, something that was as important to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the early 20th, uh, late 19th century American landscape is of some interest, let's say, to me. So I'm drawn to events, figures, characters from that, that, that moment. And uh, that is a very big part of the pool. The, the, the impulse for wanting to take this on uh, had a lot to do with that. But I, I'm also interested in the intellectual history of the American South at that point. I'm interested in many of the insights that you get from somebody like Booker T. Washington. And I'm interested in the debate between Washington's sense of what is possible to, to achieve as an American, African-American subject. What I was very keen on trying to do was to then use that very much as a kind of counterpoint to the ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois, especially the souls of black folk. Now, you know, both figures are working, writing and thinking at the same time as Bolden is playing at the height of his powers, if you will. You know, Souls of Black Folk comes out in 1905, up from slavery is 1908. You know, Buddy Bolden stops playing in 1907. But between the late 1890s and 1906, he pretty much was the canonical influential figure in this newly evolving developing music. So in a way, what I wanted to do was to create a kind of gumbo with all of these elements, the intellectual history of African-American thought at the time, sonic revolutions, principally in the New Orleans area, but not exclusively. And of course, an interest in both the sartorial and landscape features of American life at that point in time. All of that gets thrown into a kind of gumbo, <laughs> and what you get is precarity. I'm glad you mentioned the film's sartorial extravagance. We'll get to that a little bit later. The, 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 the clothing and costumes, if you will, in precarity are, you know, oh my God level. Early in the film, you use a line from Genesis, and you use it repeatedly. The Lord said to Noah, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth. I will destroy all flesh. And it's easy, especially in 2018, to uh, read the line and to see some of the imagery in precarity as a specific reference to Katrina, as a suggestion that Katrina is supernatural payback for uh, everything from the state's incarceration of Buddy Bolden in an insane asylum to a metaphor for how Louisiana and New Orleans have treated African-Americans and, and, and other black Americans. Were you specifically interested in a Katrina reference or were you more interested in, in the river, a broader reference to the river, to the Mississippi and to seasonal flooding and to regular flooding? That is so interesting, Tyler. I mean, wow, that is really, really interesting. Because, you know, everything you say is right, but I was looking at it from the, I suppose, the wrong side of the telescope. You know? <laughs> of course, Katrina is, is important, but the precarity of the title was important for me because it, it, it was about trying to understand this sense of fragility that the city occupies as an ecosystem in, 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 in that part of the world. You know, much of it, as you know, is reclaimed land. Much of it is, you know, constantly at the sort of mercy, if you will, of, of, of flooding and, and, and waters. And so the, the sense of overflow of water as a kind of biblical presence, foreboding presence, if you will, 
in that space was important to me. But I was also interested in the sort of, I mean, you know, we're talking period of reconstruction now, you know, the 1860s to 1890s, and, you know, um, and there is a kind of precarity to black subjecthood, you know, endlessly faced with this foreboding threat of the flood of racist reaction, you know. So I'm, I was interested in, in, in water in both a metaphoric and a kind of metonymic sense. I was interested in the sense in which black identities and especially when it comes to questions of citizenship seemed precariously balanced over a kind of turbulent waters, if you like, of antipathy and, and, and dislike. So, yes, I hadn't, it never struck me that biblical floods might be seen on my part as kind of retribution. I certainly didn't think about it that way, but I can see why that could be a legitimate reading as well. It's certainly unintended, put it that way. Because <laughs> there are a lot of beautiful landscape shots in the work, both identifiable as, as urban spaces, you know, with uh, roads moving over a couple feet above the water, and then also kind of more this is a horrible phrase, but industrial pastorals, where we see an, an oil refinery or a chemical factory sitting just barely above the water. That carries through the entire 40, 45 minute, whatever it is, work. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things which, when you embark on something like this, you, you're, you're aware that you're doing, is mining a kind of folkloric or archetypal tradition. And... and Clearly, in in African-American folklore, especially from that part of the world, uh, I was aware from really pretty early on how much water imagery pervaded song forms, poetry, uh, and sayings. It's, It's just, you know, whether it's the more famous ones like Wade in the Water or deep river, you know, there, there, there clearly is a sort of appeal in, in African-American folk form to biblical references to floods or water as both a destructive and redemptive force. And I, I wanted to include that in this piece. I wanted it to not just be in the sound, but, but to, to find a way of visualizing that, if you will, and, and what that means. Now, you know, a lot of the times, the appeal to water is for a kind of cleansing, a quest for salvation, if you like. I'm going to wade in the water because I want to be clean, I want to be free, I want to, to get over it, to get to the other side and all of that, you know. So in a way, what mattered most to me was to see what a landscape would look like, suffused by water imagery that was drawn from, from this tradition of of songs and and gospels and folklore, if you will. One of the other elements that it seems fairly plain that you wanted to find ways to reference, especially given that Buddy Bolden was held by the state in an insane asylum, was was the warehousing of people in Louisiana, a practice that, of course, continues to this day. And, and the way I, I read it is that you, one of the ways, maybe the major way you chose to make that reference was with a sequence that involves fingerprint cards, hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of fingerprint cards, all of which, of course, are handled by white people. Did you consider other ways of referencing the warehousing of humans? And then why did you pick the, the way you chose? I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the, the ideas of Michel Foucault, for whom, you know, the 19th century was a, was a sort of turning point, you know, uh, because it heralded this becoming of the surveillance as a kind of disciplinary power, if you will, or uh, surveillance as a sort of branch of governmentality, as I think he called it. So much of, much of the uh, reference to, to the cataloging of people, if you will, is, is, is about trying to reference that emergence of disciplinary powers as, as a sort of feature of state life. It was simply one of the ways that I thought uh, one ought to, to say that. Because, you know, when you watch precarity, there are 
images abound in it of people at work, various forms of work, and the the manufacturing of a society is quite literally one of the things I'm interested in. And of course, the you know the disciplinary arm of of that manufacture is essential to to highlight because it's it's part of the mix you know so i don't i don't make too much of it but i think it is a necessary element in this mix for what would become american society at the turn of the last century um and i i just thought it ought to it ought to be there you know the building that you use as as the asylum in which Bolden is held, I, I I don't know what that building is. I I I don't know if it is or was an asylum, at least on the, the, the external shots of it. But it's it, it does not look like a panopticon. But there are you know, which is a for listeners who don't know, it's a a, a building that is designed to allow all of the inmates of an institution to be seen from a single point by from, from a single person without the inmates knowing or being able to tell they are being observed. But there are moments where I felt like you were maybe referencing panopticons and what they are. And was, was that intentional? Was that something you thought about explored? I mean, we looked very hard for the, the Benthamite, building that might allow us to, to to reference the panopticon much more precisely. But I think in the way what we found was different and an and interesting variant on on nineteenth century disciplinary regimes. This was a hospital on the outskirts of New Orleans. It was a nineteenth century hospital for lepers. It's an amazing, it's an amazing shape. Yeah. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary. And has been a military base for, for a while as well. So here you have this, this space, which clearly is to corral and keep the incurables, as it were. But they can't be managed in the same way as one would manage, you know, let's say, criminals who needed to be observed. These were people who simply needed to be shut away and they needed to be regulated in a much more geometric way. You know, you walk this way because if you made the mistake of walking that way, you might contaminate someone, you know. So it was interesting for me to see a version of disciplinary power from the 19th century, which didn't conform to the Foucauldian notion of 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 a disciplinary regime, which was based essentially on what you could see and how you can observe, you know. This was very much an American variant and all the more interesting because of that for me, you know. Yeah, panopticons go back to the late 18th century and and they're English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of shots looking down long hallways in the building that we are meant to read as the place where Bolden is held. Lots of these shots kind of su- suggest, you know, perspective running away to a vanishing point. And in the American art tradition, this is most famously used with railroad tracks. And artists in the late 19th century used them, and really into the 20th century, used them as a metaphor for the endless potential of America's West and Western lands. And and here you use them very differently. Why were those shots of, of interest to you? Why, why was, why did they hold appeal? I mean, you know, this is so interesting that you you picked up on that. As you know, the 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 quattrocento uh, perspective, which is what we're talking about essentially, is is one of the sort of defining, you know, features of of our modernity. It starts sometime in the you know in, in the 15th century and came to define you know the modern period. But it's always associated with sort of progressive. And, and enlightenment themes. And I think one of the few advantages we have making work now, especially time-based work, is, is to interrogate that whole art history tradition and come to different conclusions uh, about it. You know, because one of the things that we tend to do when we, when we discuss, especially the European enlightenment, is to stress 
the extent to which it 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 was a move away from quote unquote the darkness of the medieval period. But you know, the Renaissance period is also the time of uh, exterminist adventures in in the new world. It's, it's a period of new world slavery. It's a period of the genocidal impulses that led to you know large parts of the globe being being emptied of of indigenous people and 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 the marginalizing of indigeneity period so occasionally it feels to me as if we need to use that perspective to also suggest something of the dark side of the renaissance something of the dark side of the modern period so I'm self-consciously deploying that perspective in that sense as a, as a way of, of moving it away from this endless stressing of it as a, a sort of feature of, of light and, and, and progress. It's, it wasn't always, in my view. I want to step away from visuals for a moment to ask a sound question. One of the really striking moments of sound design in the work comes in conjunction with a scene of huge bales of cotton being rolled and loaded onto boats, uh, historical footage. And then you give us contemporary footage of big red paddle wheelers, steamships, I, I think is how we're meant to read them, read them in the film. And the sound of the paddle wheeler, the steamship, the thing, rises to a cacophony of white noise. I think it's the absolute loudest moment of, of the work. Why so much of white noise? Why so loud? What did that mean for you? I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, I was keen to do with this piece is to always stress the extent to which, you know, sound and, and in imagery might allow us some insight into, into this figure. You know, let's not forget, this is first and foremost, a piece about a figure who was incarcerated in 1907 and spent the rest of his life in that institution. And incarcerated for pretty much throwing a pitcher of water. Yeah, but, uh, you know, at a person. And he did it, he did it twice. So, but, you know, it's, but, but, yeah, I mean, but that's not the same as other things. That... No, no, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> what I don't want to do is to romanticize a certain kind of dis-ease, which Bowden clearly embodied. He doesn't strike me as a figure who was particularly happy at that point in his life. And to that extent, he's the forebear to, you know, Delona's monk or Bud Powell or Charles Mingus. I mean, there are, uh, there is a history in jazz, of figures who clearly uh, bouted with bipolarity and schizophrenia of various forms. And so it is quite possible that, that, that Charles Buddy Bolden was one such figure. The, the oral history suggests that there was, there was a point when he was just drinking a huge amount, volumes of the stuff. Now, he may not have been bipolar, he may not have had bouts of schizophrenia, but there was, there was clearly a kind of unsettlement, a discomfort, a, a, an unhappiness somewhere. Was it to do with the, the, the nature of his subjecthood at the time in New Orleans society? Did he want more than he could do? I mean, what was it? I don't know. And that's, that's part of the fatal attraction of this figure. You know, he allows us the the opportunity to project all sorts of stuff on on him because we don't know what actually happened. And it, it seemed to me that it was worth at least exploring the option that he might face one of the key agonies of of African American life at the time. Here you are, you're you're a citizen of one of the most powerful states on the planet at the time and you're making massive contributions to its power and its sense and its wealth but you're also on the margins of that society you can see the the power the wealth and the status but, but it's just beyond reach for you 
And I, I was keen to try and explore that a little bit. I was keen to explore what it feels or could have felt like to be a second-class citizen in the most advanced industrial space in this part of, the, of, of our planet at the time. You know? So that's, that's the interest. It's, it's in the, the, the undercurrents of disempowerment in advanced industrial capitalism especially American, of the American variety, put it that way. I suspect that answer has something to do with the next thing I want to ask about, which is the intense, overwhelming, ravishing beauty of the film, the way you use beauty. And I want to get at that in what I think are two really different ways. One, Some of the most beautiful shots in the film are of oil refineries and chemical industry factories, these intensely industrial spaces juxtaposed against the river, against something growing next to the river might be sugar. I mean, what was once sugar might might still be, I don't know. Why were the industrial buildings of interest and why did you plainly go out of your way to make them as gorgeous as humanly possible? I mean, you know, there is a there's a sense in which when you're trying to make a film on the evolution of of 19th century African-American music, jazz, if you will, that in a way you're charting the history of, of a soundtrack, right? That sound, that, the, the, the soundtrack to advanced industrial capitalism itself. You know, I was, I've been amazed over the last 20 years how much when we need to speak about certain periods that, that, that symbolize affluence and wealth and, uh, and so on, how much jazz is always the soundtrack for that. You know, when you think about all representations of the Roaring Twenties, as soon as you see it in any film, there will be the ragtime. I mean, it's almost like, you know, so there is, there is a kind of symbiosis. I, and I'm, I don't think it's just in my head. I, I think everyone feels as if that music somehow exist in a kind of mimetic relation to our sense of triumphant capitalism at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. And so it felt, it felt right. I mean, that if you have a, a piece, uh, a multi-screen piece in which you see footage of acres of sugarcane fields being worked by African-American men and women, if you see factories in which clearly the consumer goods have been produced by 19th century Italian and Eastern European migrants, that if you were to see those things in, in archive form, it was also important to have a, a kind of counterpoint to those in the present. You know, so in a very straightforward sense, I simply wanted a way of mirroring in the present what you could see in some of the archival material from the past. But, I, but it also felt to me as if there was a dialogue between them, between these three elements, you know, the archival past and, and its industrial relics, a figure who will be seen in time as a kind of father figure to the soundtrack to that moment, and, of course, what you see in the present. You know, it just seems to me that the present we needed to find a way of suggesting echoes in the present, which were both archival and sonic. And there might be other ways of doing it, but this, this seemed the best way for me. So for listeners, let me um, just kind of quickly describe how one of the ways that works in the film. So there are these beautiful shots of industrial landscapes, factories and such, and then the next cut, or, or, or pretty close, might be of archival footage of uh, black field workers cutting down sugarcane, you know, earlier or later in the film, probably earlier. There are shots of uh, well-dressed white factory workers working in textile mills, textile plants, juxtaposed against a, a few shots later of, say, black people digging coal or, or mining coal. So the, the, there is kind of this this is a horrible phrase I'll never use again, tripartite cycle of, of these of these things that run, uh, of these references that run through the film. We skipped by costuming earlier. I, I you know, uh, don't know how to describe how thoroughly opulent and gorgeous and 
and what people are, what the characters in the film are wearing is, other than to say that there might be, you know, like 10 or 12 or 14 costume changes for each character in the film. I mean, not only are they wearing gorgeous stuff, they are wearing a lot of gorgeous stuff. Obviously, that was really important to you. Why? It's important to me because I'm trying to work in a genre, and, and, and the genre is, is really a costume, the costume drama. And the costume drama says three things pretty much simultaneously. It says we are referencing the historical, that generally what will be going on in this piece will be of an internal variety. You know, costume dramas are very rarely action films. <laughs> they're, about, they're about what's going on in people's heads. And, and finally, you know, they inevitably are also a, a way of tracking a kind of emotional arc. You know, when you think of some of the great ones, uh, recent ones, you know, The Age of Innocence, you know, Scorsese's uh, Age of Innocence, one that comes to mind. You know, the whole thing is about constructing a, a costume arc so that when you arrive at the moment, at the end, when Newland Archer finally realizes that what his life has been, it makes emotional, sartorial sense. And it was very much an ideal for, for this. I wanted in the end to end up with a piece in which when you see, and for those who haven't seen it, they'll, they'll know what I mean when they, when they get there. When you see him in the final dark suit in the performance space, that the sobriety of it makes a certain kind of emotional sense. And when you see him beyond that in, in the rough hewn costumes that they too would make a certain kind of sense. So costume dramas find a way of infusing dress codes with a kind of dramaturgy, a dramaturgical arc, if you will. And it, this was something I was very keen to explore. So uh, yes, they look good. That's important because that's part of the genre. <laughs> People very rarely look ugly in costume dramas. <laughs> but but the, the reason for that is, I think, in part, what one is involved with is is, is a sort of uh, quote unquote higher truth of the dress code. It's it's about trying to find a moral map uh, of the intangible, which uses the visible dress code as a way of sketching that out for you. And so you have to do it right. You have to do it. You have to obey some of its codes because otherwise it doesn't work. And one of the codes is, is that elegance has to sit at the center of this so that its absence starts to say something. You know, you have to have it because when you move away from it, you're saying something with that move either left or right. You know, you, you want elegance to be the, the yardstick by which a, a certain kind of evolution of a character can be measured or seen. Another way you really underscore beauty throughout the film is in the symmetrical way you compose shots. And, and really, even in, you know, I, I know we don't talk about Georgian pictorial construct in film, but, you know, the asylum is, is, is a Georgian building. It's perfectly symmetrical. When you shoot what had been a textile factory and shoot it empty, that's a, that's a perfectly symmetrical Georgian shot. When you shoot the black church later in the film, it's a Georgian shot. Obviously, symmetry was, was an intentional choice, but how much is that, how much are you hoping American... Americans read that as as kind of coming from a British architectural tradition, as referencing British involvement in in the fundamental injustice. Put it this way, there is certainly a will for symmetry on my part. In a way, one of the reasons for that is to provide, again, another yardstick by which we might measure his rise and decline, if you like. This is, you know, a quintessentially 19th century story about the figure who comes of age in a period 
just after the ending of antebellum slavery. His parents were born in it and his grandparents were. And those were the spaces in which they did most of the work. The, the Bowdoin family were basically brought from Virginia to New Orleans, essentially to work for a very rich cotton merchant who lived in a house of impeccable symmetry. Symmetry pervaded their lives. It defined the spaces of their exclusion, and it defined the, the, the places they could enter, if you will, or not enter. So, so form itself is a central player in this drama of becoming and unbecoming. And it's very important for me that, that wherever form is complicit in a drama, that we out it and, and let people know. So that's one of the reasons why it's probably one of the most forbiddingly symmetrical pieces I've ever done. You know, it meant it, it was important to, to, to how uh, one experienced his life. Finally, I don't want to give away how the film ends, where that, that shot or those shots are and, and, and what happens. But I do want to ask you about how it kind of really implicates the viewer in this whole story. It kind of uh, puts us in a place that many of us who have been to New Orleans have been. And it, and it brings us to a place that reminds us that we have been there as outsiders, as tourists, as gawkers. And I wonder uh, how and why that was the way you wanted to bring Bolden's story and this historical arc to, to, to the end. I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting that somebody like me endlessly has to ask themselves is what is the difference between what you're doing and, and, and a feature film, let's say, a piece for the cinema. And the sequences you're talking about is, is really a very good illustration of the difference. Because the, the, the fiction of the period drama would be to take you into spaces where you get to know everything. Oh, this is what he sounded like and this is where he played it. What I have to do, and I think this is the difference essentially between time-based work for the gallery and, and other spaces, is to tell you why it's important that you cannot know everything why it's important that some things are withheld, because that is actually the true portrait of your real relation to the past. So I, I can't give too much away, but all I would say is when people are, when they get to see it and when they get to the, the, the end sequences, they should bear that in mind. That what is offered to you both as a lack and a presence is about telling you the things you can't and shouldn't know. Because that's, that's what, we you know, we don't know what Buddy Bowden sounded like. We have no way of knowing that. It was never recorded. And what I don't want to do is to offer you the fiction that what you're listening to, for instance, is what he sounded like. That's not, that's not a liberty I want to take with the historical. And I think it's one of those ethical important asides that, that gallery pieces can do. They can, they can force you to ask yourself the question of why you need to know something that cannot be known. <laughs> you know, only gallery pieces can do that. This, this will sound like a completely either frivolous or highbrow conceit in a single screen piece with a cinema. Because in the cinema, you are entitled to then say to the to the filmmaker, well then why have you made this film if you can't take me there? And I think that would be a fair question for the cinema. It is not a fair question, it seems to me, in the gallery, because the gallery uh, space is not trying to offer you necessarily fictions, historical fictions. That's not my vocation. I will, I will play with the historical, I will question it, I will toss it around, we will dialogue, but ultimately there is no hubris in what I'm doing which says that I know in advance 
of history what it really was. I don't, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. So but it, this is a sort of long-winded, slightly elliptical way of answering a question <laughs> that you can't ask and that I can't ask. <laughs> When, uh, you know, who knows, in a few years when we talk and tape again, I have other things about the ending that, that I'll ask. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Should we wait till then? <laughs> yes. Yes. John Acomfra, what a delight. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Focus, Camrose Aram, is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition features all new work. Spanning painting, sculpture, collage, and installation, Camrose Aram's work investigates the complex relationship between Western modernism and classical non-Western art. By highlighting their formal connections, he reveals the typically downplayed role that non-Western art and design have played in the development of modernism and its drive toward abstraction. Challenging the traditionally Eurocentric narrative established by art history, Aram's work sets forth to disrupt this perceived hierarchy by merging and equalizing Western and non-Western forms through June 17th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, my March conversation with John Acomfra, taped when the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art presented the U.S. debut of Acomfra's Vertigo Sea in Sublime Seas, John Acomfra and J.M.W. Turner. The exhibition, which pairs a film installation Acomfra made for the Venice Biennale in 2015 with Turner's painting The Deluge, is at SF MoMA through September 16th. John Acomfra, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. Vertigo C, you made the piece for the Venice Biennale, and of course Venice has a, a famous centuries-long relationship to the sea. Is your Was your decision to make a work that revolves around the world's oceans substantially or even mostly about that, or was there a whole lot more to it than that? A combination of, of, of reasons. Obviously, yes, the fact that the Biennale or biannual was in Venice was a consideration. But, you know, it also happened to be around about the time when the refugee crisis in Europe was pretty much at its height. I think the year before that, before the biannual, there had been something like 5,000 deaths at sea of, of people, of people trying to get to Spain and Italy. Uh, Lampedusa was one of the places where people were trying to get to at the time. So, that, yes, there were reasons why Venice had an, uh, a sort of influence, but there were reasons why the general political and cultural, I suppose, for want of a better word, backdrop mm -hmm. of what was happening in Europe influenced my decision too. Nothing comes across the across the 45 minutes of the film installation as clearly as the idea that the oceans are dangerous that they are sites of a many different kinds of violence mm -hmm. was it the refugee crisis that brought you to the idea of of pointing out how violent oceans are or was that only kind of the the gateway well you know uh, <laughs> there's always a uh... And an enigmatic thing about quite how you arrive at something like Vertigo Sea. I've I've said over and over again to to people who've asked me this question that listening to this young Nigerian whose voice opens Vertigo Sea 
had a major impact on, on me, partly because I suddenly realized that, that I was in the throes of listening to someone discuss becoming. It's very rare that you get that. It's very rare that you listen to someone or, or watch something where you think, wow, I'm, I'm watching literally a new species or a new being come alive. And I, I, I felt that very strongly. So once I, once I got him, once I got the refugees, the question then was, what other stories and what other narratives and chapters involving making and unmaking at sea could, could this young man talk to? And I, I realized without necessarily even, you know, thinking about it as a project that I, I knew all of these different chapters. You know, I had uh, been a member of something called Chile Solidarity in the, when I was a teenager in the 70s. And, and I had heard about all these political prisoners in Chile and Argentina who had been taken out by helicopters to sea and dumped by military hunters in, in both countries. I'd realized that I knew from my French history lessons <laughs> that, that the colonial, anti-colonial war in, in Algeria uh, involved exactly the same process of, you know, French paratroopers taking out uh, Algerian freedom fighters and dumping them at sea. You know, I remember as a as a child watching i mean riveted to to news programs as we watched the what was then the refugee crisis par excellence and it was vietnamese refugees trying to flee vietnam who were you know dying then in their thousands at sea you know so you you suddenly realize actually you know quite a bit and the question then is how can you get all of these disparate chapters and elements and narratives to somehow converse with each other to just have a conversation and that was the ambition i i didn't i mean i'm not sure that if well if i said to you that i set off with this plan and and that that plan is the finished vertigo sea i'd be lying my my aims were just much more modest than that it was really just to initiate a conversation between these disparate narratives of of lives and deaths at sea and somehow as i as i thought about it, it they all seem in some ways connected to, to 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 the main sort of drama of deaths at sea which is the sort of two century three century uh, traffic in in humpback and sperm whale killings and the question was, how can you get these things to talk really to each other? So that, that was the aim, if that makes sense. This is the first time the work has been shown in the U.S., so I should maybe just try to give listeners an idea of uh, how many things die, are killed, or suffer violence in the ocean in Vertigo Sea. And the list includes uh, polar bears, whales, uh, birds diving in to, to spear fish. Um, you mentioned Vietnamese. Um, the African slave trade is represented in the in the film in a number of ways i i, I could keep going it, it, it's a 45 minute piece i i just want people to I, I just hope listeners understand we're not just talking about people here there's a, a a very broad emphasis on the danger part of what sublimity is mm-hmm. um in 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 the piece we're going to come back to vertigo c in a moment but mm-hmm. one of the things that you get to do here um at sf moma is to have Vertigo C, which plays across three screens, in the same space as Turner's 1805-ish painting, uh, The Deluge. Did The Deluge, painting from the Tate, which um, I'm sure was uh, no uh, small drama to get, did The Deluge um, or Turner's like it inform Vertigo C, or was there another relationship you wanted to make between the painting and your work once you finished making your work? I mean, Turner is a, is a central figure um, and has been really in, in my, in my life for four decades. You know, when I was a very, very young, 12, 13, we lived quite close to the Tate gallery, the Tate, what is now Tate Britain in London. Uh, And Tate Britain is, is really the, 
the museum that houses the Turners when he bequeathed them to the nation, mm -hmm. the British nation. And so I would go there, walk down to the Tate Saturdays to, to, to just gawk, really, at them. I, I've always loved Turner. And something about his work always suggested to me a way of working, I suppose. You know, his understanding of light, of shadow, and critically, um, the changing shape of what one would call nature itself seemed, seemed important to understand and digest for me as a, as a, as a person and as a, later on as an artist. So he's always been, he's always been central. But what's even more critical is that there are two pieces of Turner's that I've been particularly struck by. One is the deluge, which we're, we've got here. And the other is the, uh, the Zog, which is his painting on the deaths of Africans at sea who were thrown overboard. Both of them are obviously subjects which are close to my heart in Vertigo Sea. And so there are direct references for me. But I mean, they have been in the background of, of, of what I've been doing in the last decade for a very long, I mean, you know, in the last decade, essentially. No, he's a, he's a, he's a seminal figure. You know, the fact is, you know, generally people don't think that there might be a relationship between the work of a, a radical black artist and, uh, and an 18th century, 19th century uh, neoclassical painter. But I just urge people to just have a look themselves at Turner's work and then just come and have a look at, come and have a look at Vertigo Sea. And I think the elective affinities are very very clear and I, I'm, I say that I don't make any apologies for that at all I think he's an, an extraordinary painter uh, was an extraordinary painter and I've learned a huge amount from his work I can hardly think of anything I love more than a painting being uh, in, a, in a film installation gallery I, I, I love that the, that we can recognize you know four decades five decades into into from the beginning of video art we can I think recognize that it, it's all part of the same soup. One kind of um, weird niggling question about uh, a, a decision you made. Why why is Vertigo C on three screens? Why not two? Why not four? Why, why that way? Technically, I had worked on a, on a triptych just before. There were certain questions raised by, by this trinity of a of a format that I wanted to explore further I didn't I mean I thought we I thought we we sort of got control of it in the end but it's a bit of a raging beast of a triptych and uh, having just figured out how it should work I, I wanted to just return to it again to see how much more we can get out of it I mean essentially the reasons why I it seemed the right form for for Vertigo C was that the clearly there were going to be disparate elements to to this, and I was setting out to make something which was also going to be quite discursive, layered, and not necessarily a whole a whole, if you like. It was going to be made up of a series of fragments, as it were. But I also needed people to understand that these fragments are all in the process of attempting to have a conversation with each other. And it seemed to me that if we could, if we could mirror that in the form that it, that it was taking, that it would make a bit more sense. In other words, if people can see the conversation itself being played out across multiple screens, it would somehow underscore the importance of the key theme of Vertigo C, which is that I'm essentially trying to get a whole series of historical moments which have no necessary correspondence between them at all to have a dialogue with each other. That, that seemed really important to me. I mean, it just seemed important, almost as Carlo Ginsberg, the historian, used to say, almost a, a part of our obligation to the dead, that if you exhume 
narratives about the passing of life, one of the ethical responsibilities you face, it seems to me, either as a writer or an artist or whatever, is to is to say to that, is to try and rescue that dead narrative, character, peoples from from the key fact of death, which is singularity. You die alone and on the whole death wants you to be on your own, in your grave at sea or in the ground. And it seems to me that if you if you exhume in that way, you what's incumbent on you as an artist is to get those that you have exhumed to have a relationship with each other. It's important for me to say to a group of Vietnamese boat people who died in the South China Seas, look, there is an Argentinian who met the same fate as you. Talk to each other. Or at least let's see you make let's see you attempt to talk to each other in in something and let's see what sort of language what kind of dialogue might emerge if you were to initiate that conversation that seems to me to be important and i that's really one of the main reasons why i wanted to to have this multi-screen format as the key narrative device for for vertigo scene and it very much works that way so the film which is kind of an empathy engine presents say the danger of climate change and humans to polar bears and we 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 see a polar bear being uh, quite graphically shot dying and then ultimately killed and and as we you know minutes after or even maybe on one screen over as we're seeing that we're seeing references to the 18th and early 19th century transatlantic slave trade where it's both the ocean and white humans who are the danger to Africans. And mm. it, it, the, 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 the installation kind of overlaps these, these, these scenes. I read an interview you did with Art Radar in which you talked about how, while Vertigo C debuted in Venice and has now been seen in the UK, that you're learning the reactions to it depend a lot on the national histories of where a work is shown. Um, you said that Denmark, which, like the United States, has a, or at least the Eastern United States, has a whaling history, kind of really locked in on on that part of the work. How do you feel about that? Is that okay? I, you know, so it's not just <laughs> yeah, losing great. control of a thing you make when it goes out into the world and goes international. It's maybe a little bit different because it's losing control of what it means to people. Uh, no, I understand that and I understand why that might feel like that. But I honestly don't mind. I really, and it's important to to say that because that goes to the very heart of the ambitions behind the piece. I mean, you know, when you pull together disparate elements into this relation, you know, emotional affinity or proximity, that is with the hope that they might stand together. But but you're also aware that some may be more appealing depending on the location in which the the work is being played out some may be more appealing than others you know there will be some that that the people have a familiarity with that they might want to to explore more than than others and that's okay I, i mean i think all we can do is to offer the charismatic example of of this show of strength between these elements you know that they all turn up at your doorstep and say hello we're here and we want to have a you know we want to have a conversation you know i think it's important that they all turn up but i don't think you necessarily have to listen to all of them at the mm. same time or even take seriously all of them that is in fact part and parcel of the democratic impulse of engaging with a work like this you have every right to i, I don't mind i mean I, I the only thing i would say if you make something like a vertigo C, i.e. a triptych, disparate elements, multiple narratives, you are you're trying to find connections between things. And clearly one of them is the sort of masculinities unbound, you know. So you're saying, look, when you see a, a bear being shot in the 1890s, you know, don't forget that he 
you know this you know animal is being shot in a space that that this figure who's shooting it has arrived at via boat and that boat may well have been used you know 50 years before to to get another figure to another place where they might have killed a sperm you know it's just trying to make suggestions that people could explore mm. about connections but there is a core and the core is is a certain kind of masculinity which which is formed at sea essentially and that masculinity is one that believed <laughs> that it could kill other creatures with immunity because we needed things from those creatures and found no real shame in in then practicing the same brutalities on other human beings as it had done on the cetacean universe you know so it's it's really just trying to make connections for for people but in a in a very democratic way in a very open-ended way choose what you feel is important if 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 not if you don't take all of them on it's fine you know i don't mind i have probably overemphasized the violence and killing in vertigo c there is no. also an overwhelming amount of of lush colorful rich beauty in the in the film installation is there something you want us to understand or find about landscape and its relationship to violence and how landscape can in a, in, in a way wipe clean the violence that takes place upon it i learned something very early that i've i've always sort of tried to in a way work through in most of these works and it it's something you find very dramatically drawn out in let's say the work of turner so you know in the way when you watch one of these turner seascapes you are seeing you are in the presence of the sublime and that is not necessarily just about beautiful things it's about that fundamental clash between beauty and terror which creates these moments of the sublime at sea so i learned that very early i, I remember being i was in rwanda with a, an old friend who covered the the genocide there and um, i was really struck by just how incredibly beautiful most of rwanda was and i i, I remember turning to him to say how is it possible for so so many really terrible things to happen in a place that looks looked and looks so beautiful and he said ah john <laughs> actually that's where that's where most terrible things happen mm. you know and it is true it's the backdrop to violence isn't necessarily always treblinka or auschwitz those are sort of exceptions in a way on the whole most violence happens in places people would consider quote-unquote beautiful and so it's it's really about trying to say something about the nature of of images and and of the forces that shape what we understand to be beautiful you know seas are incredibly powerful terrifying things you know but beautiful at the same time you know. Finally, as the credits, at least I think what we can call the credits of, of the film installation roll at the end, there are three photographs on the middle screen, uh, three photographs, three different people. They are unnamed so far as, as I could tell. Um, who, are, who are they? One of the things I was very keen to do was to find another way of naming people and things in Vertigo Sea. So the three that you're talking about are enslaved Africans, and they were the daguerreotypes that I got from the Peabody Museum in, in, in Boston. Mm. And, and it seemed important in a way for them to be present there. There's something really very sad, but also quite beautiful about these figures with so much sadness in their eyes, gazing unflinchingly either at the camera person and it's almost as if they are they are trying to say something to us in the in the present in our present it's almost as if they're saying you know i'm consenting to have this image of mine 
made because I know you in the future will see this. And when you see this, know that I, Joseph, enslaved African on a plantation in North Carolina, was a human being. And I greet you as another human being. You know, it's, it, it, it just felt like that. Every time I looked at those images, I thought, they're trying to speak, literally speak to me in the present. And I need to place them in, in this piece in order for them to speak to others. And you know what? The, I found out so many times in, in the portraits that we used in Vertigo Sea, whether they were people from um, Argentina in the 1970s who were just about to die because they were, their, their photographs were being taken as they were in these detention centers. And many of them were either shot, taken out to sea and dumped or something very terrible happened to them anyway. And they had the same look. They had the same look which said, you know, I am consenting to have my image made because I know you will see it. And when you do, know that I lived once and I would have loved to have lived longer. You know, it just seems to me one of those contracts that we make with images, that we, they come with a promise from a very long time ago, usually from very far away, different places. And they, they try to communicate something to us. And I think part of my job is to alert, you know, my viewer to those implications. John Acompra, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.